Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. And Adam Feuerstein is not joining us this week as he is on vacation. It's Thursday, July 11th, and here's what's on the docket this week. First, STAT's Washington correspondent Lev Fasher will brief us on a busy week for the drug industry in our nation's capital. Next, we'll talk about internet billionaire Sean Parker and his impact in the world of cancer immunotherapy. I just put out a big profile of Parker, and we'll talk about what I learned doing the piece. Then our colleague Matt Herper will join us to talk about some sad news. Michael Becker, the biotech executive turned patient advocate, died from cancer this week. We'll remember Michael and reflect on his legacy. And finally, we'll do another lightning round. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. It has been something of a whirlwind week in Washington when it comes to drug pricing policy. So first there was an executive order that no one understood. Then came a court ruling on TV commercials, some behind-the-scenes bipartisanship, and finally the 11th-hour death of a pretty major proposal. To walk us through all those twists and turns, we've got Stats DC correspondent Lev Fasher on the line. Lev, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with that death of a signature Trump policy. That was the requirement that drug companies disclose the prices of their medicines in TV commercials. What happened there? So this was essentially the biggest accomplishment the Trump administration could point to to date on drug pricing. There have been many big ideas. Few of them have been fully implemented. The concept was very simple. When a drug company runs a television ad, it has to disclose the list price to consumers in that ad. It was controversial because, as we know, patients rarely pay a full list price, and there was a debate over how meaningful that figure actually was. But a district court judge here in D.C. ruled that the Trump administration doesn't have the authority to enforce that rule. So really a major setback at the beginning of a key week for drug pricing here. So late on Wednesday night, the Trump administration backed down on another one of its signature policy proposals related to drug prices. Love, tell us what the rebate rule is and what happened to it. The rebate rule was a proposal to effectively ban a lot of the rebates that drug makers pay pharmacy benefit managers under Medicare. The thinking was that this would allow drug makers to lower list prices, though there was not necessarily a mandate to do that, and there was controversy as to whether it would happen. It was going to cost taxpayers a lot of money, somewhere in the ballpark of $200 billion over the course of the next decade. It was also a slight political liability for the Trump administration, since it was potentially expected to increase some Medicare premiums, that's obviously an electoral problem if you have a lot of Medicare beneficiaries suddenly paying more for health insurance and for drugs immediately before an intense re-election campaign. So the Trump administration has formally backed off, and that leaves their broader strategy really unclear because, like I said, they haven't actually implemented most of their ideas. Congress has yet to really forcefully act on the issue of drug pricing. And everyone in D.C. really feels under the gun on this issue. There's political pressure. This was thought to be a bipartisan area for consensus. And now the path forward is very unclear. So, yeah, that's a natural segue. It seems like 
some of the major pillars of Trump's ideas of drug pricing are crumbling. And that kind of leads us to maybe what was the most important forward-looking news of the week. Lev, you and our colleague Nick Florco reported that some key White House advisors made a pretty interesting pitch to Republican senators. What was that meeting about and, and what do we think it means? Right. So on Monday, Health Secretary Alex Azar came to Capitol Hill with Joe Grogan, which is significant. Grogan is the chair of the Domestic Policy Council for the White House, and he's also a former Gilead lobbyist. Azar, of course, is a former Eli Lilly executive, but they had been on the other side, on the opposite side of a few issues, namely the rebate rule. Grogan had opposed it. Azar very vocally supported it. So them coming to the Hill together was a nice show of unity for the Trump administration. And it was also really a sign that the White House might be more pliable than previously thought on some drug pricing policy. Azar, without endorsing anything directly, hinted to Republican senators that they might want to go along with an idea from Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon who is one of the highest ranking senators on the finance committee, to enact a cap on price hikes within Medicare Part D. And Republicans have historically seen this as a form of price control. And it really was a sign that the Trump administration might be willing to deal, which makes sense now, knowing that the rebate rule was on the way out. So a lot more going on in Congress. The separate Senate Help Committee had actually included a policy that would force drug makers to very publicly detail and justify any price increase of more than 10% year over year. That's controversial. It's unclear whether it will make it into a final drug pricing package. But there's a lot happening on Capitol Hill. And it's fair to say that the Trump administration and lawmakers alike are, are feeling a particularly high amount of pressure given the abandonment of the rebate rule, which was one of the bigger things they had pointed to in their effort to lower drug costs. So all of this is happening in the shadow of last week's big news, which came when Trump himself promised an executive order that would make sure that the United States didn't pay a single dollar more than the lowest drug price offered to any country in the world. We're working on a favored nation clause where we pay whatever the lowest nation's price is. Why should other nations pay much less than us? So at the time, there was some debate over whether that's even possible, let alone what it would do to the American pharmaceutical market. Do we have any more clarity now on what this would mean? We very much do not have more clarity on what that means. The president last week, he used the term most favored nation in talking about a forthcoming executive order. It's a trade term. It's one that has been used uh, by Peter Navarro, the president's top trade advisor in other contexts in recent months. And it's interesting because it mirrors one of the Trump administration's biggest remaining drug pricing proposals, an international price index. The concept essentially is to look at what other countries are paying and limit what the U.S. pays for certain drugs based on those payment levels. It's unclear whether that is what Trump was talking about. Favored nations, as I said, are a distinct trade concept. It would be a totally distinct effort if the president put forth an executive order mandating that the U.S. not pay more than any country in this class of nations, most favored nations. But again, it could have been Trump just phrasing the international price index concept uh, an entirely different way. The White House declined to clarify. The announcement seemed to catch the Department of Health and Human Services pretty off guard. So there's not more clarity a week later. And it ended up, of course, being a week that made the drug pricing landscape much more confusing than it already was, if that were possible. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
probably remember Sean Parker from his days as an internet pioneer who helped build the likes of Napster and Facebook. He also built a multi-billion dollar fortune along with it. In 2016, Parker made a huge splash in the world of science when he announced that he would make a big investment to try to advance the field of cancer immunotherapy. Let's listen to that announcement. Today, we're announcing the creation of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy with a $250 million grant from the Parker Foundation. We unify the research programs, administration of intellectual property, data collection and management of clinical trials between our six partner centers under the umbrella of a single nonprofit medical research organization. So it's been more than three years since that announcement, which meant we were more than overdue for a look at the impact Parker has made in the field. So Rebecca just published a big piece on Sean Parker that involved a three-hour interview with the man himself, along with conversations with some of the leading scientists in the field. And I recommend anyone listen to this, go read that if you haven't already. But my own curiosity is kind of on the behind the scenes thing. So Rebecca, for starters, you went to Parker's house to interview him for the piece. What was that like? Yeah, so I went to LA for this interview. It was the first time I had done sort of the traditional celebrity interview magazine style piece. And it was everything I had hoped for and more. So Sean Parker's home is in the Holmby Hills neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, It's right next door to the Playboy Mansion, if that gives you some context. And he bought the home for $55 million from Ellen DeGeneres a few years back. It is a crown jewel of mid-century modern architecture. And it was a pretty nice home, I have to say. The interview was in kind of a lobby style space. It was not very lived in, you know, like I don't get the sense that Sean Parker and his wife and, and small children hang out there. Like this was sort of the meeting space of a very nice home. So for those of us who don't travel in the rarefied air of mid-sench mansions and, and billionaires, I think our prevailing impression of Sean Parker is derived from the movie The Social Network, where he is portrayed by Justin Timberlake, and it's a script adapted from a book that is pretty famously deviant from reality. So that being my impression of Sean Parker, what impression did you get actually spending three hours with the guy? So it was very clear as I talked to Sean Parker that his goal was to make clear that he speaks the language of cancer biology. And he does. I was convinced, very convinced, because all my questions, no matter what I asked about, and I was usually asking about his own experiences, his views, Parker would find a way to immediately get back to till therapy or to talk about antigens. But I did think it was interesting that that was his goal. I mean, I think as you had said, he had earlier in his career developed this reputation as, um, you know, kind of a, a billionaire, certainly had a reputation for partying. And I think, you know, he's 39 now, a serious philanthropist, and he wanted to make clear that he is serious about the work he's doing in cancer immunotherapy. There's a difference, though, I think, between having done your homework, which he clearly did, and making a real impact in advancing the field in ways that weren't already being done. And so that was what I was trying to probe with the the story itself. Well, I think a perfect encapsulation of that is, you know, looking at different definitions of seriousness and what Sean brings to the world of philanthropy was your lead off anecdote, which was a pretty amazing story about an ice sculpture. Can you recap that for us? 
Oh, yes. So listeners of this podcast are surely familiar with Jim Allison. He's the cancer immunotherapy pioneer at MD Anderson Cancer Center, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine last October for his contributions to the field. And so Jim Allison, along with his wife and collaborator, Pam Sharma, are funded by Sean Parker's Cancer Immunotherapy Institute. And so uh, Parker and, and Allison have gotten to know each other well. And so Parker, as one does when one's good friend wins a big award, wanted to find a way to celebrate him. Uh, when my friends win awards, I might text them, congratulations. That's about as, as far as we're going to go. But I'm not Sean Parker. Sean Parker arranged for an ice sculpture to be designed and delivered and assembled in Allison's backyard. This ice sculpture is really something. Allison's face is depicted on this giant eight foot tall ice sculpture. Sean Parker told me that the sculpture cost about $10,000 and he split the cost with a few of Allison's other friends. So no long-form piece of celebrity journalism would be complete without cameos from other famous people, and yours is no exception. Can you tell us about a few of the big names that kind of cropped up in reporting this out? Yeah, so there were a lot of celebrity cameos in this story. So back in April 2016, at Sean Parker's rarefied Los Angeles home that I visited, he threw a huge launch party to kick off his cancer immunotherapy Institute's work. Uh, This launch party involved performances from John Legend, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The finale was, I kid you not, Lady Gaga performing La Vie and Rose. And fun fact, Bradley Cooper was a member of the audience at this big party. And when he heard Lady Gaga perform this song, he decided down the road to cast her in the film A Star is Born. So another member of the audience at this party was Carl June, and he's, of course, the CAR-T cancer therapy pioneer at the University of Pennsylvania. And I talked to Carl June for this story, and he told me an incredible anecdote. So Carl June, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, has an incredibly brilliant mind for cancer biology, but he's a little less brilliant at face recognition. And so he said he was chatting up a man named Tom that he met at this party. They were having a great conversation, but he didn't realize right away who Tom was. And the realization a few minutes later was this was Tom Hanks. So yeah, your story was a really thorough snapshot of what Sean has done in the first three years of this plot. What are you watching for next? Yeah, so one theme I'm going to be tracking is sort of how Sean Parker's Cancer Immunotherapy Institute wants to grow in the coming years. So it's pretty familiar playbook for a medical nonprofit uh, that's founded by a celebrity billionaire to look beyond that individual for sources of revenue down the line. You don't want to just be dependent on one person, partly for sustainability reasons and partly so that you can do even more. And so The Parker Institute is sort of increasingly starting to think about bringing in money via different channels. One of those ways is through licensing deals uh, when the research that they fund gets commercialized. Another route is by taking out stakes in biotechs, including uh, Timunity, a company working on cell therapies. And then another route 
is by courting outside donors. The Parker Institute is planning within the next year to announce the first of those outside donors. So I think that'll be an interesting and important theme to watch, uh, whether kind of their early progress can translate down the line to kind of sustained impact in the field. So as you mentioned, it seemed like Sean Parker's goal was to make very clear that he's not some dilettante in this world, that he's done his homework and, and that he is to be taken seriously in sort of immuno-oncology terms. So is that resonating? Like, what has the reaction been to your story from outsiders? Yeah, I think overall, the reaction to the story has been very positive. Um, People seemed impressed by the Sean Parker that I depicted. You know, I think even with sort of the fun celebrity cameos that uh, came up in the piece, I think people recognized that Sean Parker is doing some really serious work and that in some ways, you know, this sort of rarefied world of Hollywood and Silicon Valley that Parker occupies is kind of creating attention uh, and shining a light on cancer immunotherapy among people who might not otherwise be listening. I will say I have not heard from Sean Parker himself about what he thought of the piece. And if you're listening, Sean, you are always welcome to come on the podcast to talk about what you think. This week, the world of biotech lost one of its most visible and admired members. After looking back at my life, it really was a very good life. And I would love another 25 years of it, but I can't complain for what I've had so far. Michael Becker was a longtime industry executive who became an affecting patient advocate after he was diagnosed with cancer in late 2015. Michael documented his treatment journey in really arresting detail over the years that followed. He put a human face on a disease that often gets discussed in the abstract among drug industry types. And Michael died on Tuesday. He was survived by his wife and two daughters, and he was 50 years old. Our colleague Matt Herper got to know Michael pretty well over the years, and he joins us to talk about the legacy that Michael leaves. Matt, thanks for joining us to remember Michael. Thanks for having me. So Matt, how did you first meet Michael? You know, Years ago, Michael was like this guy who showed up in my inbox like a lot of people reporters interact with. You know, he wrote a newsletter that covered biotech stocks when I first started covering biotech. It was useful in figuring out what was going on as, you know, a 23-year-old trying to figure out what this industry meant. But over the years, he was always there. He was an executive at some companies. He did some public relations. He ran some immunotherapy conferences and newsletters that were a very influential early on in immunotherapy. And then about a year ago, he'd been writing this this really moving blog, and I worked on a video project at Forbes. He was facing HPV head and neck cancer. You know, HPV, which can be, Michael would want me to point out, prevented by a vaccine, results in about 34,000 cases of cancer annually in the U.S., and about 13,000 of those are men, a lot of them about Michael's age, who have this disease. And he really was a pretty inspiring uh, influence. I mean, he said something at a conference that has really stuck with me and that I actually stole from my Twitter bio, which is that every data point has a face. So Michael also became an advocate in opposing right to try, the legislation that 
past last year with some controversy. So Michael came on this very podcast a little over a year ago to describe why he was concerned by that legislation. Here's what he had to say. The supporters of uh, Right to Try have not been shy about you know their next steps or what their hopes are. I mean, they, they really are uh, very vocal about dismantling the FDA and taking away um, some of that oversight and letting patients decide ultimately, you know, what they want to do. It's a, it's a return to the Wild West of drug development before the FDA was put into place. And that's a very scary thought to me. What Michael really provided that didn't exist, and there are other people who've done this, but he just did it so well, was to be able to bridge the perspective of being someone who'd worked in the drug business and someone who was facing disease. And, you know, that happens more than you'd think, or I guess it happens as often as you'd think. But he wanted his disease to have an impact, and he was really willing to speak up both about right to try, which is an industry issue, but especially, you know, he did a CBS Good Morning segment, which is about the HPV issue and about the fact that there's not enough coverage with that vaccine and that that vaccine really will prevent cancers like his. So in addition to the blog we mentioned, Michael wrote a book in 2018 called A Walk with Purpose. Where did that title come from? It was something his dad said to him, where he thought his son was walking around looking kind of aimless. And his direction to him was, don't walk like that. Walk like you've got somewhere to go. Walk with purpose. Uh, And that became a metaphor in the book for trying to accomplish something with your life. What was amazing was Michael was also trying to accomplish something with his death. He was very aware that this was terminal cancer and wanted to make the most of the time he had. So Matt, back when you were at Forbes, you interviewed Michael at length for a video segment. Tell us about what that was like. What did you take away from the process? Well, you talk to a lot of patients in this job where you talk to them on the phone or you meet them briefly and they become a little bit of a story. It was one of those times where I really spent a lot of time with him and he really opened up both his home and I visited him. There's footage in that video of his house. And then he also let us come with him when he got chemo at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And it was at a moment when he was deciding that he wasn't going to go for another round at that point. There was just a reality to what he was suffering with, that he was very willing to address really tough questions about what it meant to be facing cancer that he knew was going to kill him. So Matt, you wrote a remembrance of Michael for Stat this week, and you you already touched on this, but one of the things you highlighted was how that point he would make, that every data point has a face, really stuck with you. Why? Why do you think that that really resonated with you, and what did you take from that moving forward with your work? It's been a goal for me. For a long time, and a lot of the best stories I've done, I feel like have remembered that. You know, Michael had tweeted something a while back that someone had sent to him. Jeffrey Gardner, the CEO of Argentum Pharma, which is a generic firm, had written him and written, I suspect your book, blog, and Twitter feed may just be the greatest drug you've ever developed. You have undoubtedly saved lives. And I think a role Michael really played in our kind of biotech ecosystem was because he bridged those worlds more than a lot of patient advocates. He was a reminder of the point of cancer medicine is 
treating cancer patients. And he just really did do a great job of driving that home for all of us. Matt, we appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. And finally this week, we have yet another lightning round. So let's start in the world of consumer genetic testing. So back in 2015, 23andMe decided it wanted to branch out from just selling genetic data to drug companies and start trying to discover medicines of its own. One of the big reasons it was taken seriously was because Genentech veteran Richard Scheller, a well-regarded scientist in the field, would be leading that effort. But this week, our colleague Kate Sheridan reported that Scheller would be leaving this job. So the question is, does this matter? Right. So on the one hand, maybe. The idea behind 23andMe's embrace of drug discovery was that they're collecting all of this genetic information from all of this spit in all of these tubes. So why not, instead of just you know selling access to that to pharmaceutical companies, why not mine that data for potential drug targets that 23andMe itself could, uh, could prosecute with science. No one has said this, I should say, from either 23andMe or or Richard himself. Scheller leaving could be a sign that that plan didn't really pan out that well, or it could be a sign that, you know, people change jobs all the time. Scheller is on a bunch of biotech boards. He's leaving to have the murky role of chairman of R&D at a company called Bridge Bio that very recently went public. It's very possible that he decided at his age, he'd rather have his hand in a lot of different pots rather than be married to a desk job. I think also of note in this industry was a report from Bloomberg this week about a kind of lesser known company in the DNA testing industry that's Vitagene. And Bloomberg reported that for years, this company had exposed thousands of customer health reports uh, online without protections. And so this kind of breached information included customers' full names, their dates of birth, and their genetic risks for certain medical conditions. So I think it was a reminder about the privacy concerns in this industry. And I think stories like this, even from lesser known companies, can have a big impact on consumer trust in kind of the bigger names. So moving on, thanks to the Trump administration's crackdown on foreign investment in biotech, among many sectors, a headline you see pretty much every quarter now is that Chinese investors are putting less and less money into the drug industry. But when you scroll down in those stories, including some that I've written, so I want to make that clear, it gets a little confusing as to what that headline actually means. So this is one of my biggest pet peeves. The data that's used in these stories to track the rate of Chinese venture capital spending on biotech always uses the same statistic, and that's the value of deals in which at least one Chinese VC participates. So the problem with this number is we don't know how much cash the Chinese VCs put into any given deals. Maybe they put a dollar in. Maybe they put $500 million in. We just don't know. So The problem is using this number as a metric for how spending changes over time does not actually tell that story. So speaking of frighteningly large amounts of money, there was some news this week in an ongoing dispute over access to research between a major university system and a very major publisher. Yeah, that's right. So there's been an ongoing dispute in recent months between the University of California system and publisher Elsevier over open access research. Uh, They can't reach an agreement about how 
research freely available to the public should get read and paid for. And the latest development this week was that Elsevier has cut off access to its new journal articles to affiliates of the University of California. And that's a big deal. We're talking a range that spans 435,000 subscription articles published annually in some 2,500 journals including big names like Cell and The Lancet. So this seems like a major flex on Elsevier's part. Is it possible that, you know, this is kind of a sign of things to come, the publisher wielding this much power over university systems who have for so long been its clients? Yeah, I mean, in the same way, I think it is the UC system flexing too, because they are, unlike everyone else, refusing to sign a deal on Elsevier's terms. And so I think the question that, universities and other institutions and groups that pay Elsevier lots of money for subscriptions will be watching is whether playing hardball like that actually works out okay for the UC system. You know, are researchers able to find alternative legal ways to access these papers and have their research not be interrupted? If they are, then I think it won't be unreasonable to expect uh, more universities to play hardball like this. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Embanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which celebrity billionaires we should profile next. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.